Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go, and newcomers to this series who are ready to jump in. I'm Drew Shulman. And I'm Marie Vigourou. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 3, Episode 16, Season Finale, No Rest for the Wicked. Let's get this show on the road. May I begin this by saying, <laughs> For some reason, I forgot that we were recording this episode this week. I thought that we had already <laughs> recorded it. And so when you said, what a season finale, I said, well, yeah, we talked about it last week. <laughs> but yeah, so what, what did you think? I mean, I really liked the episode. I liked the angle they took with it. I love how, even though it didn't really, like, we got what would be, like, 12 seconds of Lilith as a villain, and 10 of those seconds, she's basically like, oh, no, my powers is gone. It was just such a good episode for the brothers as a finale. And then cliffhanger much? Did you know that he was going to hell? I have no recollection of this. I, I imagine there'd be a, like, fake-out death or, like, a we see him in hell for a minute before saving him. But to fully end a season with him literally in hell, I was like, no, I was not prepared for this. <laughs> you know, and this is really solely because of the writer's strike. Because Dean was never supposed to actually go to hell. They were supposed to get him out of the deal. That was the original idea for the season. But then with the writer's strike, they didn't have enough episodes to be able to like launch them on this quest. And so they had to wrap things up a little bit differently. I guess we'll never know, but I would have loved to have seen the other side of this. I would not. Do you know why? Oh, why? Because the only reason why angels were introduced was to get Dean out of hell. <gasps> oh my God. Okay. Yes. Then never mind. <laughs> Pretend I didn't say anything. No, I need my cast. I want my cast. Everything happens for a reason. With that, you want to count me down? I'll do a quick recap. Three, two, one, go. We have less than two days left till this deal of Dean's is done. We have Bobby helping them out and also giving probably the most important line of the show, which we'll talk about later. But oh my God, Bobby, family, better than dad, best. Ah, sorry, my Bobby fandom. They... Summon Ruby, even though Dean was very against it, but surprise, Dean was in on it the whole time. They did it to snag Ruby so they can steal her knife and go after Lilith, and they do, and the whole town is, like, full of demons, and it's actually a really cool kind of covert ops mission. And then Ruby somehow shows up and gets them, but then Bobby is able to protect them because he has the holy water and the sprinkler system, and they eventually find Lilith, and there's this really tense, like, is Sam about to murder a child just to kill a demon? And, no, luckily, stopped in the last second because Dean can somehow see demons now, which raises so many questions all day through later. And, ultimately, we have a final confrontation where the Hellhound gets Dean, it turns out Lilith took over Ruby, and, or whatever human Ruby was inhabiting, I guess, and then there's a little fight, and, like, her powers go, and then she has to flee, and Sam's all, like, badass for no reason out of nowhere, magic demon powers, maybe? But then Dean is in hell the end time? Wow. Yeah, I mean, there you go. That's the episode in a nutshell, frankly. Again, a lot more to talk about because a lot more happened, despite it feeling very, like, mellow, surprisingly. 
I mean, I have thoughts about the pacing of this episode, um, which we'll get to later, but you're absolutely right. A lot happens, and yet it feels like not that much happens. So going into the recaps, I really like to play it improv style and see what comes to me and let it kind of flow natural. I don't want to have it planned in any way. I always find it funny when I feel like I'm going for so long and I realize like there's a lot to talk about. And there's other times where it's like, okay, oh, that's like three things that happened and now we're done. That was a 13 second recap, I guess. And you realize how dense or fluffy an episode really is. That's true. That's very true. Let's move on to the long game because we have a very heavy plan for story time for today. Let's go. The episode is playing Carry On Wayward Son, just like they did in season two. And now every season finale will actually pretty prominently feature this song. And it really becomes a part of the DNA of the show and the fandom. Again, going into the fact that we named this show after that song, basically, and I had barely seen enough season finales, but I knew for a fact the song was so ingrained in it. The band itself, Kansas, is aware of it. And and like, you know, they're friends of the show. Let's put it that way, you know. I don't know if you noticed, but the recap montage is a little longer than usual. You know, just to make sure that the audience is prepared for maximum pain. Yeah, I get that. I'm going to just put it out there, but this entire episode is built for maximum audience pain, actually. And like, honestly, that's my thesis for today, and I'm totally ready to defend it. Yeah, no, I'll agree. We'll talk about it as we go through the story time. But like, it really, no part of me expected Dean to effectively go to hell. I was like, maybe we'll get a fake out. Maybe something will happen. Like, I just even uh, we'll talk about it more later, but like, I never expected it. And the episode does a really good job of painting that picture for you. I can tell how upset you are about this already. Like, it's bothering you. It needs to come out. I'm going to go watch the next episode tonight. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Ruby calls Sam a freak. And this moment basically marks the reprisal of Sam's freak arc from season two. I don't know if you remember that because we haven't really talked about it in season three. Yeah, it kind of like faded away. Like I remember I like hearing this note now and I'm just like, oh, yeah, that kind of was a thing, I guess. OK, we're back on that train. <laughs> we're back on that train because like season three was about Dean and his deal, whereas season two was more about Sam and his powers. So that's kind of like a little bit of foreshadowing that we're kind of going back to a little bit more focus on Sam. How about that? I mean, the ending, yeah, this episode really did feel like that, and especially the ending, the final confrontation, really made that clear. This episode also introduces a really iconic line, and that's, again, something else that's going to become a part of the DNA of the show. It's Bobby's line, family don't end with blood. And arguably, like, this is really where the show's definition of family is going to start to expand. And I have to note this, that it's one episode before Cass is introduced. Oh, I didn't even think about the Cass part of this, but just... You know what? It's such an important line. I feel like it's something that we've really hammered home throughout the series is that reminder that found family is as important as your birth family. And in some cases can be more important. It's all on you and how these people affect your life and how you choose to let them in and how they accept you. So to have the show really just like text on text is it, just mwah. and to come from true father is the best. There you go. From true father, Bobby. <laughs> Bobby is best dad. Bobby is best dad. That's true. Now, 
in order to try to redeem myself for the Canon or Fanon episode where I said that Dean doesn't know how to play the guitar, where I was wrong. Again, I'm putting it out there. I was wrong about that. <laughs> I want to note that Dean sings in this episode with Sam. Sure. Outside of the show, Jensen does have a band and is a singer. So I know he can sing and I've heard him sing. and He's good. But I like how in this it felt like he couldn't sing. I feel like that was the goal, right? Just to belt the song out. It felt like the way I feel when I'm singing along in the car, knowing full well that I can't sing, but at least I sound as good as them in my head when I know in reality I do not. Okay, well, that's it was a relatable moment. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. But again, just to be clear, Dean can sing and he can play the guitar. And so can Jensen. Okay, there you go. <laughs> now, now that that's been made clear, can we move on to story time? The episode opens with Dean having a nightmare about being chased by hellhounds. And so if we remember in 208 Crossroads Blues, this means that the hellhounds are actually getting pretty close to him. So I don't know if you remember Crossroads Blues, but it's the one where the hellhounds are after you. And then the closer they get, the crazier you get, basically. The more visions, the more everything. But Sam is really reassuring Dean in that moment uh, that, you know, he doesn't care what it takes. He's going to he's not going to go to hell. Bobby knows where to find Lilith. Don't worry. Of course, it's only 30 hours to go and they're cutting it close, but they will save him. That is Sam's promise to Dean. Very like trying to comfort you into thinking they're going to save the day. But also this entire series up to this point has been filled with like, oh, you're going to die. Oh, surprise, we saved you magically at the last second. Like, I legitimately expected this, this episode. That's basically my opening argument for my thesis, you know, about like how this episode is built for maximum pain. Because like this episode lulls you into this false sense of security through Sam most of the time. Because I don't know about you, but when I first watched the episode uh, years ago, I knew that there was like a total of 11 seasons at the time, but I was still a little bit worried. I was like, oh my God, like what's going to happen? Like, of course I knew that like Dean was going to survive this somehow. I didn't think that they would go that route a little bit like you, I guess. You know, I feel like we've had those moments before where like, you know, even just looking back at like this season, Dean has died multiple times and in some cases, a lot of times. And even when they played it for serious, there was always a way to save him. And again, like I've said before, I avoid looking at the remainder of an episode's time because I want to be surprised by things. And I legitimately had the moment of like, OK, what's going to happen next? And then the credits rolled and I was just like, oh, oh, no. He's having those nightmares and those visions already. So to hear Sam reassuring Dean like that, I was like, OK, it'll be fine. It's going to be OK. Can we actually talk about the visions for just a second? Of course. Yeah. I think that is the most brilliant piece of lore they have brought into the show. Thus far, this whole idea of being like closer to hell and being closer to death, the hellhounds being on your tail, that it has these like side effects of messing with you. But the fact that it can be twisted around and used, I don't want to say for good, but like in a positive sense that Dean can now see demons in disguise. But also the only time we as an audience see it, though, is when he's looking at Sam. Oh, <laughs> Sam, who potentially has some demon blood running through his veins, but Dean doesn't put this together. But for me, it clicked immediately. <gasps> no. Oh, that's interesting. 
Yeah, to Dean, this is just another one of those like, ooh, my mind's playing tricks with me. But to us, it's the, oh, no, no, you're seeing the face behind the face. And Sam's got some demoniness running in those veins, unfortunately. So maybe you're seeing more than you think you're seeing. That's really interesting because this effect, like the face, you know, the face effect that they do on Sam, we've seen that too in Crossroads Blues and it was on a, on a human, right? On a regular human, no demon blood, like straight off the assembly line human. So I didn't think about that necessarily, but I like the interpretation. Love I don't it. know. It just, it, it just seemed too on the point on the nose to do it and not do it for the rest of the demons. I don't know. I am not going to disagree with you because it could totally be seen that way. Honestly, like I am kind of wondering why I didn't see it that way before. <laughs> that is now my new uh, headcanon. So what did you think of the fight between Sam, Dean and Bobby? Again, one of those great fights where it's so hard to like pick a side because everyone seems to be right again. Dean's right. Dean is Dean is Dean is a pessimist. Dean does not think it's going to get happen. He's unfortunately right. He is like if we're going to do this, it better be done right, because there's no point in you guys risking your lives to potentially save mine if I'm already gone. Like, either I die and the two of you are safe, or we go in there and I die and the two of you might die as well. Like, it's very ha glass half empty, but, like, thinking positive. And, of course, Sam is, you know, Sam is Sam. Sam is gung-ho. Sam is not going to take no for an answer. He can beat anything. He's the hero. And poor Bobby is like stuck in the middle and he just needs to be there for them. But he doesn't want to pick a side. But he does know that, you know, he's kind of on the side of like, if we do nothing, you're dead. If we do something, you may live. I mean, I think he ends up picking Sam's side, though, right? Like he goes, Sam's right. What I noted about this whole like exchange was that we're seeing a little bit more of that like consequentialism versus deontology that we saw last episode, which is basically like, you know, the ends justify the means versus like we have to make sure that the means are just in order to make sure that the end is just as well. I think you know who is on whose side, right? Like it's pretty clear just from that explanation. And we've been seeing this all season and it's basically... Just Sam, again, thinking that he's justified in working with a demon if something good comes out of it. Whereas Dean thinks that it's just wrong, no matter the outcome. Kind of like what we talked about. I think that it's really interesting here that Bobby says Sam's right. And I really think that in that moment, Bobby is meant to be the voice of the viewers. Because I think at the end of the day, as much as I understand Dean's point, I'm with Sam and Bobby 100%. We're not going to sit back and let you die or go in alone, idiot. We're going to go save you. Exactly, because he loves Dean and we love Dean and Sam loves Dean. And we basically all want him to survive this no matter what the cost is. So if we have to call Ruby, we'll call Ruby. Oh, 100%. But I just, I also want to highlight the next thing that Dean says, because it was really important to me. He says, no, damn it, just no. We are not going to make the same mistakes all over again. And this really makes me think about the situation differently because I'm hearing like cycle breaking words here in a show that's been so much about passing down trauma, like passing it down, but also passing it around because, you know, <laughs> yeah, fun times. Those words, I think, are really important. This was the first time in this episode where I really had to kind of stop and like really re 
evaluate Dean's position because, yeah, you know, get Ruby's help. She can, you know, we can as much as it's it's mean, they're basically using her. But it just comes down to the same cycle. It's relying on a demon, making deals, taking promises, messing with the dark arts in ways we shouldn't in an attempt to rectify something that really at this point they should be dead by now. Like the number of times these boys should be dead and are only here because demonic mumbo jumbo to, to, to use to use layman's terms. But really, like, yeah, sure. Ruby could teach Dean to harness uh, sorry, teach Sam to harness his magical demon blood powers and blow up Lilith off the face of the earth and become the new Satan. But like, is that really what we want to save Dean with? It's such a strong point, and given, like you said, everything we've talked about, it is just so potent. That's just a really very specific prediction you've just made here. <laughs> oh no, does Sam become new Satan and blow up the Earth? <laughs> we'll see what happens at the end of season four and five. I totally agree with you, because what I hear when Dean says this is basically like, I know that I made some dumb choices before because I knew it was dumb when dad made it, but I made it anyway, and I've learned my lesson, and this is it. It ends with me. I really respect that. Like, I think it's it shows growth for Dean, especially, again, like in a, in a show format where we don't see a lot of growth for characters. Like, I find that this is this is huge growth. In just a moment. It's impressive. It truly is impressive to see. On the other hand, though, we've talked before about how Dean experiences suicidal ideation. And it it makes me wonder about where to draw the line between him like growing and accepting death as part of life and him experiencing suicidal ideation. And that's the thing that makes me a little bit uncomfortable here. I don't know if Dean is just being righteous or if he's self-sabotaging. And... I really do think that there's probably a little bit of both. Yeah, again, I can never look inside of this character's head and tell you what they're thinking. I don't think even the writers could do that, given everything we've seen. I feel like the language that Dean chooses to use in this scenario is much more about protecting the next in line rather than sacrificing himself to end the cycle. To me, that reads more as... I want to save Sam, even if it means I die, versus I could use this as a free out and by extension end up saving my brother. That's just the way I read the scenario. I could be wrong. All readings are, you know, make sense in their own way. And I definitely see both sides of it. But it's just it's just a feeling I get from this scene. I honestly I'm not arguing against it either. Like, it's one of those like, I just can't quite put my finger on it personally, because I've seen people argue both, like argue one side and the other. Like I've seen both sides of this argument and I'm like, I don't really know for sure, (laughs) but I just wanted to acknowledge that. Now the next scene is pretty interesting because again, it is also set up to cause maximum pain. All right. So we're, we're led to believe that Sam summons Ruby anyway, and that Dean shows up because he doesn't trust Sam. But like you said in the recap, it basically turns out that it was their common plan all along and that they were playing Ruby for her demon knife. So again, we're like really scared that the brothers are fighting and then we're reassured that everything is going to be okay, just like in that first scene. And this interaction I find between Sam, Dean and Ruby was something And so I kind of wanted to know, like, in your whole, like, cumulative analysis of is Ruby good or bad, like, where does this land? (laughs) 
this to me lands very squarely in the like ultimately i still feel ruby wants to do good like i really feel like this is her trying to be more helpful yes her means are definitely to get rid of lilith and getting rid of lilith is very much her goal and she's using sam to do so but i still feel there's a level of her that like cares because realistically the way she beat up dean you could tell from the past fights we've seen her in she was holding back like dean dean is messed up at the end of that fight you see him limping he's bleeding he's mumbling because i think he's bit his tongue it looks like but like he's okay he gets up and walks away from that i feel like real pissed off ruby really like screw this i'm taking you out ruby would not have left dean nearly as intact even with a trap there to stop her okay so to you basically you're saying that because she didn't really beat him up like it's she's okay with helping them like a, a little a little forced hand right but but she's she's in the end okay with with helping them out and again in the world of demons where i'm assuming this is a little bit more okay this was a beating to prove a point not a beating to kill point taken Abuse like that is never okay, even for demons. But with this one demon in this one scenario, you can at least read that from this situation, I believe. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about demons here, right? So let's, we can, we we understand that the moral code here is a little bit different for demons. How about that? <laughs> All right, let's fast forward to Dean killing the cop in cold blood. Because if we're going back to my thesis of like, this episode is designed for maximum pain. Again, we're really, really scared and shocked to see Dean assaulting a human being for basically what we can tell, like, no apparent reason. We're reassured when Dean says that he knew he was possessed by a demon. So it's like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. Oh, okay, thank god. Like, we're... Like, the tension is, like, resolved, right? Again, so it's the third time now that this happens. I legitimately, I was, like, trying to figure out, like, hey, what did this demon do to tip off... Dean, like, where's the sign of some sort or some sort of trick or gimmick you pulled? And then it's like, no, no, I can just see his demon face. And I was just like, damn, I love this. <laughs> yeah, it was it was just it's well done. It's a really well done moment, I find. I want to talk about Sam. Because this season, we've had a lot of questions about whether or not, like, he's going too far in his, like, the ends justify the means kind of thinking. And we get an end of season test here, I find. Like, and the question is, can Sam stab a 10-year-old girl if it means killing Lilith and canceling the contract that would send Dean to hell? And that is one hell of a test because the little girl is about to wake up and the girl's mom is like, do it, do it, kill her, kill her. And Sam is just not having a good time in that moment at all. And I'd also say that this is like another instance of the episode being like super disturbing only to reassure us like a second later, like Lilith is no longer possessing the little girl and Sam doesn't have to stab her. So like, oh, so again, like a lot of tension that gets resolved by like, okay, we're good. My only real issue with this scene in particular was the mother being there. I feel like that oh, weird is, oh my God, I hate that I'm saying this. Her giving her blessing to Sam to murder her child, I feel like almost took the responsibility out of Sam's hands. So even had he done it, even if in some sick twisted universe they decided to write the episode where he does kill her in cold blood after having the mother beg sam to do so and then have the reveal of oh my god the demon left her before that you just killed a child for no reason 
it would be awful, but imagine the mother had not been there egging him on to do it. And that same scenario would be a million times darker. So I feel like even though he is ultimately stopped and Dean kind of swoops in the last second, you see Sam really having trouble doing it. He's really like holding back. And really the reason he finally does get pushed over to do it is this woman basically begging him to do it to save her life. Can I offer a, sh- a slight shift in perspective? Please. I can't pretend to know what it feels like to kill someone. <laughs> Neither can I. Just putting that out there. Just putting that out there. But I imagine that if there's like no, especially considering that Sam's job is to kill demons. Okay. Like if there's someone there, like pushing you to do something that you already don't feel comfortable with, it's like even worse than if you can kind of like psych yourself up to just do something that you don't feel like doing because it's a very tough thing instead of having like to stab a child in front of like that child's mother. I see what you're saying with the whole who holds the responsibility but i can definitely see this particular situation being particularly stressful as well that is not the argument to be made i'm i'm with you 100 percent. but i just think having having the like that damsel in distress knowing that if i don't do this this person will likely be killed there's kind of that like it changes the dynamic ever so slightly that you're you're not just killing a child and potentially saving your brother. You are actively saving this woman from a creature that has been torturing her. That just happens to be her 10 year old daughter. At the end of the day, this situation is terrible, no matter how you look at it. Like we can argue the mechanics and the, 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 the mechanics of it, you know, until the cows come home. It's just a bad situation all around, frankly. Luckily, Dean stops it and we don't have to go there. Yeah, exactly. So like we can kind of like sidestep it, but there is definitely that question like would Sam have stabbed her? I'm going to say yes. Had Dean not showed up, Sam would have stabbed the child. But had the mother not been there, he would have hesitated. I think he hesitated with the mother there as well, Drew though. <laughs> like it's a whole like 30 second montage of like the mother and Sam and the kid and the mother and Sam and the kid. <laughs> so I think it's more a matter of the hesitation, which ultimately saved her would have still been there. But the final swing would not have happened if the mother wasn't there. I definitely see it. OK, let's talk about the ending. And this is this is where we get to the closing argument of my thesis, because throughout the episode, like we've been progressively more and more scared, but always reassured and the tension always resolved that, you know, everything was going to be OK, because when Dean is having a nightmare and Sam tells him that it's going to be OK, we're, we're feeling better when the brothers look like they're fighting about Ruby, but it turns out that they had planned it all. It's going to be okay. And then when we think that Sam is about to slaughter a little girl, but Dean stops him, it's going to be okay. And here, midnight is on the clock. The brothers are crying. The hellhounds are coming for Dean and surely will be reassured that he's not going to die. Instead, Lilith is actually possessing Ruby, like like you said in your recap, right? Lilith is possessing Ruby and she makes sure that the hellhounds get Dean and Dean dies this super horrific, painful and undignified death. Not that there is more dignified death, but like this was particularly like awful. 
And this is, this is what I meant, right? Like the end of this episode is just like so shocking because we were lulled into this false sense of security throughout. And this was done purposely and it was done to shock and to hurt the viewers. And not only that, but we're also transported down into hell to see Dean's torture. So again, like emotional damage. Yeah. Even for bad CG hell, I was majorly hurt. Yeah, it's painful. Yeah, but I literally like I could I could walk you through my brain in those last like 30 seconds of the episode of before the the reveal of the Dean's in hell. So Lilith leaves the body, falls to the ground. Sam is clearly empowered to do what he needs to do. And then he walks over to go pick up Dean. And I'm like, okay, you stopped at the last second and the hounds vanished before they could finish him. And he's just really bad. Okay, that's not the case. Okay, um... Your new demon powers you've now unlocked and you're able to, like, pull his soul out of out of hell and bring him back. And OK, no. And then just a fade to hell and then just a fade to credits. And I was just like, no, nothing. <laughs> I'm well, resolved. That's the thing. You're you're waiting. Exactly. You're waiting for that moment to be reassured for like somebody to swoop in and save the day. But it just doesn't happen. It just gets worse and worse and worse. The show, let alone this episode, has conditioned me to the fake out death, to the last second save, to the whatever. It's a finale. It'll be scary, but they'll be okay. But no, no, no. Not even like ambiguous. He's not breathing and he's a bloodied body like you know, season one finale, there's the car accident, but at least you can go, they can survive a car accident. It sucks, but they'll survive. But no, no, let's just really make sure you're aware of this. Dean is in hell. There was definitely no room to think that maybe it was going to be like, it was going to pick up next season, like in that living room. Dean's in hell. Close book. The end. Any questions? No. Critical time. Who was behind this emotional devastation? I mean, episode. None other than Eric Kripke. Of course, it's a finale. It's tradition, but yes. This season, he wrote The Magnificent Seven with Emily McLaughlin. And this episode was also directed by Kim Manners, who directed The Magnificent Seven, Fresh Blood, and Mystery Spot. I feel like we've kind of given Eric Kripke some pushback in the past about a kind of a like trying to cram too much into an episode. And this episode felt very dense, but never felt like I was rushing. Like the only time I felt rushed was those last few moments, but that worked for the episode. I mean, the last moments had to happen quickly in order, like in order for maximum pain. It also leaves you questioning. Like the episode just ends so abruptly. Like it has you wondering like what happened to Lilith? What's up with Sam's powers? I I mean, I just going to say it. Lilith's eyes are white when she's attacking Sam and then suddenly they're black before she leaves the body. Like, did she lose her powers? Like, so many questions on top of the, oh, right, Dean is dead. Like, for someone that I've complained about trying to cram too much into an episode, this is how you do cramming too much in right. I know that I'm harping on this, but like, that's the point. It's to leave you questioning, to leave you shocked, to leave you in pain. Like, that's the whole goal of this rapid succession of events. Do you have any lore for us for this episode? Oh, do I ever. Your day has not gone well. You tried to ignore it at first, but it followed you everywhere. 
from outside your window as you read the news to the street corner as you drove to work. Even your break time wasn't safe. As you swore you saw the unnaturally large frame of a dog-like creature in the reflection of your phone's screen. As you turned with a gasp, there was nothing but a few strange looks from people around you. You're home now. Every door is locked. You checked. You've chosen to sit in the guest room. It is the room with the fewest points of entry, after all. You sit in the near-complete silence, except for the sound of the wind howling outside. Oh, you really hope it's the wind. Suddenly you notice the light entering the room from the window, and how oddly red and flickering it is. You turn around, and you face your stalker. It's flaming red eyes, the last thing you see. You have just encountered a hellhound. But, lucky for you, these creatures are not known to attack. In both English and Celtic lore, there are merely omens, meaning harm or death is to follow, but not by themselves. They themselves are more just a warning. Though if the premonitions do turn out to be true and you do find yourself uh, down below, you might be dealing with some other famous hellhounds of history, namely Greek or Norse mythologies, Cerberus or Garmer, to be respective, each said to act as a gatekeeper for hell itself. Heavy section, heavy lore, a lot to talk about, so I wanted to break the attention a little bit. A fun fact, there is a lot of debate about where the origins of some of these names come from, but a well-accepted one is that Cerberus might come from a hunting term, which now is more commonly referred to as, you know, to find something or to, uh, you know, spot it. So Cerberus is just a big dog named Spot. Aww, puppy. He's just a good big <laughs> heck pupper. You know those TikToks of like, oh, this white woman is going to love this big barking, like angry dog. And I feel like now that you've talked about Cerberus that way, I just want to hug him. Like, I just want to hug Cerberus. Like, I'm sure he would like sit for me, you know, like. <laughs> we can off air talk about it, but there is so much like modern media depicting like, you know, Greek mythology where Cerberus is really like not a pushover per se, but he's such a good dog on top of being a guard. I can share some fun stuff with you. Well, that's the thing. Like guard dogs have to listen to their owners. And so like, you know, <laughs> I mean, the entire mythology behind like the after the afterworld and Hades and Cerberus and all that is so wonderful. And I love it. And the Hellhound's a great example of this. It's this like dark menacing creature and it's used by a lot of popular media to depict, you know, a dark omen. They themselves are never really the culprits. If you think back even to some of the most famous examples of literature, uh, the Sherlock Holmes novels and uh, writings, there are the Hound of the Baskerville, these ominous presence of dogs. There's never anything more than just dogs being seen around the scene of crimes to kind of act as an omen. They themselves are merely set dressing to the actual events. There's definitely a lot of lore from across the world about dogs being bad omens, right? Or omens in general. Definitely. Well, that was lovely. I'm glad I could share. Would you have any critiques for this episode you'd like to share with us now? Honestly, just because we had such a heavy uh, story time, what I have here is not so much a critique as it's just a really quick observation. It's about the family that Lilith basically like takes hostage when she's possessing the little girl, whose name we never find out. I think they call her like princess, sweetie, honey, but they don't, I, I haven't heard her name, but anyway. And I just note, rewatching this episode, it kind of came to light for me that 
for that family, the introduction of the supernatural basically transformed them into like a fully dysfunctional family unit, not unlike the Winchesters. In the fields. Talk about emotional damage. Ugh. Yeah, seriously. I'm so sorry, but it's a, it's very true, right? Like, you know, this family, which for all intents and purposes of what we know, were completely normal and loving and just like living their daily lives, being taken over by a demon possessing this, this child, this beloved child. Well put, well put. Would you have any reflections or calls to action this week? Yes, certainly. And my reflection is a little bit more meta this week, I have to say, because I watched this episode just the day after I watched the series finale of Criminal Minds, and I was already pretty salty at how much better that was than the Supernatural (laughs) series finale. And watching this season finale, I was really reminded that when someone shows you who they are, you should trust them. And Supernatural showed us that they don't mind shocking and hurting us. And we really should have trusted that. And I know that this is a different situation from the finale, from like the writer's strike and whatnot. I can't help but draw parallels. It's a good, it's a good thought to keep in mind. Exactly. What about you? Similar vein, but this episode really threw me for a loop. I really did not expect an ending like that. It just reminds me that in life, You never really know what to expect of anybody. Like, I mean, I think the classic cliche here is don't touch a book by its cover. You know, up to this point, Supernatural, yes, it's hurt us, but it's always kind of like, I don't want to say like ended happily ever after, but like, I can't think of an episode where I was like, I can't believe it ended that way. It always sort of ended with like a return to the status quo a little bit or enough that the next episode could start. So you know what? Don't touch a book by its cover. Expect the unexpected. That's all I can say. <laughs> I think that that's a very good one. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you for listening. Speaking of listening, shall we head to our community and see what they have to share with us? Yes. This week, we have a voicemail from Avril. Salut, Marie-Drew. One of my absolute favorite episodes of the entire series is in season three, which is Ghost Facers. Um, I love how it's supernatural at its absolute bonkers and heartbreaking best. But what I also love is that it gave the fandom the glorious term, the ghost facer effect. So to remind us all, the way the episode is shot is an unsolicited pilot of the ghost facers reality TV show. And so Sam and Dean are actually just guest characters in this episode. The idea is the Ghost Facer show is the unfiltered reality of Sam and Dean. They swear and they throw the bird, all censored, of course. But they do and say things we never see them do and say in Supernatural proper. Because of that, the fandom has co-opted the term to mean all of the things that the writers and producers of the show will allow in subtext, but won't point the camera directly at. So pretty much all the gay stuff. Uh, We also get the amazing character of Corbett and the enduring and all-too-on-the-nose line of gay love piercing through the veil of death, because honestly, these people are the friggin' worst. There are so many examples of the ghost facer effect. Too many examples. There are conversations, which must have happened off-screen, but we never get to hear. Like, when did Cass tell Dean about Sam's embarrassing cardigan? How is a certain character who has never met Cass, only described by Dean, able to say, you're just as dreamy as I expected? Uh, 
how did Cass get the mixtape he's returning to Dean in the first place? Famously, what happened between Dean picking Cass up at the house in the middle of the night in one scene, and when he dropped him off when it was bright and early in the very next scene? Why did they cast Colette, but not Abel? Why, in dramatic deathbed declarations to ostensibly the entire group, the camera is only framed on two people? There's lighting, which is a little too moody or perhaps too colorful. Pictures of characters and funny hats we never saw anyone take. Knowledge shared and movies watched and jokes made, which could only be possibly acquired off screen, away from our prying eyes. With the ultimate meta-narrative angle that the show pursues, it's more than a bit of a bummer that it didn't lean into this idea harder. Cass's line about making it up as they go becomes the anchor of the entire concept incredibly early in the 15-season run. I have so much to say about the finale, obviously, and I won't talk about it now because spoilers, but there was so much potential in acknowledging their history of erasure and queerbaiting and gaslighting and saying, hey, yeah, we have been controlling the narrative. We have been cherry picking what we're letting you see. And even then, if they wanted to be subversive and surprising or whatever, they could have at least committed to the bit and admitted this was the bad ending all along, instead of continuing to insult and gaslight their core audience like we're the ones who have been out of touch with the last 15 years instead of them. So that has been my mini seminar on the ghost facer effect and the terrible finale. Um, thanks so much for making this podcast. It's been a wild two years and listening to the podcast and being part of the community has truly been a sell. So thanks so much for taking the time to listen to my mess. Bye. Oh my God. This voicemail was so magic. Thank you. I just think this is like an amazing little like miniature essay that was just like a perfect like why the creative team behind the show secretly agrees with all of us and had to hide it from like the execs because like some of this stuff is just way too on the nose. I made it very clear how excited I am for Cass. I have seen so many little clips. I think I just I think I sent you a TikTok a while ago of just like a bunch of adorable Cass moments. And it's just like I want Cass in my show. I want him around as much as I can. I I totally just, I like, sort of a little crushed on the character of Cass. And I haven't even met the man yet. So this entire, as you put it, mess, which it was not, was just a beautiful love letter to enjoying media. And you know what? I know we've taken in our own time some pessimistic views on the show and on what damage can be done by the people involved in it. But it's remembering that the show is there for us and for us as a fandom to enjoy it the way we want to and the way we choose to. And I think that is very important. So just a big thank you. I I had never heard or at the very least I had never had I'd never read an explanation of what the ghost facers effect is. I had heard the term, but this was enlightening for me. Because I used to call most of these things like the fanfic gap, because to me, that's what they are. It's basically where like the writers kind of leave it open for you to just fill it with whatever you want. Like they will not tell you what happened in that gap of time. You decide what it is that they did. I'm daydreaming now. Um, <laughs> oh, well, that's embarrassing. I I agree with you, Drew, also that like, I think 
Actually, it was John Green who not too long ago put out a TikTok saying that books belong to the readers and that authors shouldn't try to define things that are not explicitly stated in the books. I have to say that whenever that happens, whenever an author says something like that, it is very vindicating to me because this is something that's true. It is objectively true. In all media theory that you're going to consume, this is what is explained, right? It's not up to the author or the creator to explain what happens when they've specifically decided not to explain it. And I think that sometimes, unfortunately, in this fandom, especially with the amount of, of you know, cons that happen and the amount of like interactions that happen between the creators, actors and the fandom. Sometimes we tend to forget that. We tend to forget that like those gaps or that ghost facers effect is up to us to fill in, not up to the creators and not up to the actors. So if we think that something is one thing, it is that thing, period. Well said. Thank you. And I'm done lecturing. (laughs) was a good lecture. Shall we head to the crossroads? Yes, we have some deals to make. Mine is really like one of those I'm cherry picking because this episode was otherwise like phenomenal as much as it like broke me. It was a gold star episode. I feel like after all the hubbub they make about like family and Bobby, he's barely in it. Yep. All I would have wanted would have been an extra like 11 seconds of him walking in to see Sam holding Dean's body and just that look on his face. That would have been enough for me to help solidify that that this is a family unit now. And he's not just an outside observer sitting in like a house like up the hill playing with sprinklers like. I fully agree with you. And this is. This actually dovetails really nicely into my deal. Oh, please (laughs) So if you don't mind me responding to your deal with my deal. As much as I think that the episode is effective, I can't say that I loved it, right? Like, I think you can tell from, like, my, my, like, lukewarm (laughs) critique of it that, like, it's not an episode that I love. I, I can't deny that it is incredibly effective. And I think that one way to make it more effective would be to fix the pacing because the pacing is weird, okay? And this is something that happens a lot in Kripke's episodes. So I'm not quite surprised. When I saw that he had written it, I was like, oh, okay, that's why. That's why the pacing is strange. And to get into the, the nitty gritty a little bit, like I feel like the boys had the same conversation twice in the episode. And so, and there was also a lot of travel and basically like, it's, it's just like that there was definitely some fat to be trimmed in my opinion, to get to the good prosciutto with that better pacing, we could have gotten more Bobby. I don't want to say you completely swayed me. Like you, like I love your point and I still feel like it's a great episode, but you're definitely right. There are moments where it kind of just feels like this scene is here because it may have been part of an earlier draft and you couldn't bear to cut it. And I feel like it could have been better surmised to then allow us to have more content or more Bobby or just more interaction with people who matter and less repetition. I absolutely agree. And I think that the point that you make about like, uh, you know, family don't end with blood, but then we basically don't see Bobby almost after that moment. Like it's, it's very strange. Like there is definitely like a mixed message there. Again, like it adds to my ambivalence about this episode personally. 
I can't believe we finished season three. <laughs> You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Drew Shulman and myself, Marie Vigourou. Thank you to our bunker patrons, Katira and Michelle, for their generous support. This week, we'd like to thank Avril for her message. Help us keep the conversation going. You can send us a three-minute voice recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube using at carryingwayward, and leave us a rating or review on your podcast service of choice. And don't forget to join our Patreon for perks and extra content. You can use the link in all of our social media bios or go directly to patreon.com slash carryingwayward. Carry on our wayward friends. The whole Dean's powers. I mean, Lil's eyes were white, then they were black. Did he do something Sam's to her? Sam's powers. This is in Gilmore oh, Girls. Damn it. I'm never gonna. I'm so flustered by this whole thing. And all I think about is Dean and his corpse lying in hell.